It's my privilege now to introduce our speaker. I've been looking forward to this since he agreed to come to Westmont, and I've been hoping for it longer than that. Mr. Philip Yancey wrote a book a few years ago, his 12th, I believe, and I heard about it almost as soon as it came off the press. And a few friends of mine, we've made a little decision that when we see a new book on Jesus, that we'll just go buy it and read it. Philip was telling me yesterday that according to the Library of Congress, there are now 50 books a day being published on the life of Jesus, so I may have to rethink my commitment. (laughs) But when his book came out, The Jesus I Never Knew, even the cover spoke to me because it's got a tremendous picture of Jesus on the front, but you can only see where somebody's wiped away and you can see the face shining through. And it, the, the very cover, most book covers don't say a whole lot in my opinion, but this one did. It said that we've, we've covered Jesus over with centuries and centuries of perhaps meaningful traditions and maybe some not so meaningful, but he's been covered over nevertheless. And one of the jobs of each generation of his followers is to wipe away the soot and the secondary issues so that we can see as closely as possible the core of the gospel, which is the person of Jesus Christ himself. So I picked up his book with great interest, and uh, I've read it twice now. Uh, I think I've, uh, Philip, I've probably sold uh, uh, many, many hundreds of those by talking about it. You can pay me later. But... uh, The thing it does is something that needs to be done, and that is refocus the attention of our nation, and I hope other nations, the attention of our churches, and I hope churches all over the world, on the core of the gospel, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Mr. Yancey has written 11 other books, two of them very well known for dealing with struggles, pain, and disappointment with God. And many of you have read those books and been helped through crises in your own lives. I want to mention, since we are an educational institution, that someone doesn't write a book as fine as The Jesus I Never Knew without many years of work and discipline and practice and study and research, things that we're trying to inculcate in in you, our students. If you ever someday want to write a book as good as his, it starts right here at your education at Westmont College. So let's welcome this morning our speaker, a voice for Jesus Christ around the world. And let me just add one other thing I've appreciated that I almost forgot. Philip has been a voice not only for Christ, not only for the church, but for the poor. I've appreciated in his column in Christianity Today, where he's an editor-at-large, I've appreciated his regular and consistent reminders that we are to love Christ and we are to be leaders, but we are to be a leadership led by God on behalf of the poor. And so I find his voice is often a, a remembrance to me, a reminder, come back Use your education, use what God has blessed you with, but be sure that it also helps to lift up the poor. So let's welcome Mr. Philip Yancey this morning. Thank you, Bob. 
Good morning. Thanks for coming. It's required, right? I actually had planned to talk about Jesus this morning, and I love my job because I can. it takes me about two years to write a book, and I can spend two years delving into a subject, reading, eating, sleeping, doing nothing but thinking about that subject. But then I can change two years later. And it was wonderful to be paid and have two years to do nothing but think about Jesus, which I did. I've been invited to speak, and people, I hate it when they say, now tell me what your book is about in ten words or less, you know. After you spend two years and write several hundred pages, they want you to summarize it. But uh, actually, I did learn a lot of new things about Jesus that I like to tell people. And it was hard for me to kind of get a handle on how to do that until one day, one night, I turned on the television and I was watching David Letterman. And every night on the David Letterman show, they have a top ten list, right? (laughs) So I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll come up with the top ten things that I learned about Jesus. And, of course, those of you who watch David Letterman, instead of studying at 10.30 at night, know that he starts at number 10 and works to number 1. So that's what I'm going to do here, real quickly. These are the top 10 things that I learned about Jesus. Uh, Number 10. (laughs) I don't have comedy writers working for me like David Letterman, so it's not a joke. But number 10, Jesus was a Jew. Now, I knew that, but actually I really didn't know that. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of how Jewish Jesus was. He actually grew up in a time when Jewish pride was on its way back, and Jewish parents started naming their children after great people in Jewish history in the Old Testament, as we would call it. Jesus was a common name. It was named, he was named for Joshua, the great Old Testament person. And there were a lot of Joshua's running around. You know, we don't, in America at least, we don't have too many people named Jesus. But in those days, it would have been nothing to name your child Jesus. It's kind of like, like Bob. Uh, Jesus was a, was a very ordinary little Jewish boy when he grew up in first century Palestine. He was probably about five foot one, like most Jews of that day. And it occurred to me, I'd never really thought of Jesus as kind of a five foot one Bob walking around. But that's what he was. And then it occurred to me, you know, we've, we've kind of sanctified, we've got a halo so that we no longer picture what Jesus was like. In fact, Christians all over the world, often in, in churches, each Sunday repeat the Apostles' Creed. Listen carefully. This is what you learn about Jesus from the Apostles' Creed. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Excuse me, did anything happen between his birth and death? (laughs) But that's kind of what the church has done to Jesus. We're so quick to to get into the interpretation of his life, the Christ, the God of very God, light of light, all that stuff, that we forget he was a five-foot-one Bob who had a bar mitzvah, who went to the synagogue every Saturday, not Sunday, and who was very Jewish, who gave offerings at the temple. Um... Until recently, there hasn't been much interest about Jesus from Jews. That's changed a lot. I came across a book written by Joseph Klausner, a great Jewish scholar, in 1933. And at that time, he had surveyed all of the literature available on Jesus. If you looked at his footnotes, you would believe this. And he could only find three books that were written, full-length books, written about Jesus by Jews. 
Now there would be hundreds every year. And in fact, there's been an amazing change. Jews are rediscovering Jesus. In Israel today, in school, school children are taught that Jesus is the greatest Jewish rabbi who ever lived. They're also taught that this guy named Apostle Paul came along and combined it with Greek philosophy and invented a new religion called Christianity. But they're kind of reclaiming Jesus, which I I find kind of neat. I like that. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. It helped me to realize that he was a five-foot-one Bob walking around Palestine. Yet, number nine, Jesus did not act like a Jew. Jesus was raised in a very Jewish family, went to synagogue, heard all the stories every other Jew did. But he didn't, he didn't act much like a Jew. I have only preached one children's sermon in my life. My wife and I have been married for 27 years, but we do not have children. And to tell you the truth, they scare me to death. <laughs> you never know what they're going to say. They never follow the instructions. They're completely... <laughs> Unprogrammed, so I, my hat's off to any of your preachers who go home and preach children's sermons. I don't know how they do it. I just ignore it. Well, one day, one day in my church, I was assigned a passage, and I said, I've got to preach a children's sermon about this. The passage is in Acts 10. All of you know it, I'm sure. It's that great story when Peter is up on the roof having a, a vision And the vision is like this. A sheet comes down out of heaven, lowers from heaven, and inside that sheet, there is every creepy, crawly, nasty, ugly, slimy animal that all of his life, Peter was told, don't touch that stuff. We're different. We're holy. We're Jews. We don't eat snails. We don't eat pigs. We don't eat snakes and insects and ostriches. We don't touch that stuff. But here, there was a vision, and You know, the the closest parallel I can think of today, actually, would be if the Southern Baptists were having a big convention down in Texas Stadium, of course, where most of the Baptists are. And Texas Stadium has this big hole in the roof. And imagine there are 50,000 men, they don't have women pastors, men all dressed in their white shirts and ties, and they're sitting there in the stadium, Texas Stadium, having their Southern Baptist convention. And suddenly... In the middle of that hole in the roof, there comes a great sheet with a fully stocked bar. (laughs) And there's a booming voice from heaven, and God says, drink up. (laughs) Well, that, that effect, the effect among those Southern Baptist pastors is exactly what Peter felt because all of his life growing up, he was told, God said these are unclean. Don't even touch them. And his mother would say, Peter, don't you ever touch that insect. He could not even touch a dead insect. Well, I, for my children's sermon that day, uh, we lived in downtown Chicago. They have grocery stores that are open 24 hours a day. Got up very early Sunday morning, went shopping. Great time to go grocery shopping. I was the only one in the whole store at 5 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning. And uh, so I, I went shopping, and I, I collected as many of these unclean animals as I could find at that grocery store. I got some snails. I got some scallops. I got some, uh, I got a rubber fly and a plastic snake. And, and uh, oh, the, the greatest thing was I got uh, a live lobster. Oh, this was so cool. Uh, my wife and I had him for brunch later that day. <laughs> Tax-deductible lobster salad. Can't beat it. 
So I, I got on the Chicago bus, went down to church with this very smelly kind of squirming bag. And uh, the children all came up, and we had a blast. We, we started with George Bush was president then. We started with George Bush's favorite food, which was... No, he hated broccoli. <laughs> His favorite fruit, food was barbecued pork rinds. So I opened a few bags of barbecue pork rinds, and, and we ate those and made a real mess up on the platform. And, and then I pulled out the snake and the, and the insects, and all the kids squealed. They were great. And then uh, as the coup de grace, I reached in and, and grabbed Larry the lobster. You know, he's waving his claws, and the kids all squealed, and he tried to bite them and, and all that. And it was great. Then the kids went downstairs, and I was left with a, with a much more difficult job of explaining to their parents, the title of my sermon was, What Did God Have Against Lobster? Because if this vision had not occurred in Acts 10, none of us Christians would be eating lobster today. And I had gone back, and I'd looked in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, and it's all very clear that the Jews are not supposed to eat or even touch this food. I read all these commentaries, anthropologists, Jewish scholars, and they all had these various theories why God, what God had against lobster and scallops, my favorite food. And, and uh, some of them talk about health reasons. You get trichinosis from pork. Well, you don't get trichinosis from lobster. You, you, why not rabbit? I've never heard of anybody getting sick from eating rabbit. That, that didn't explain it all. And others talked about pagan cultures around them and None of them really encompassed everything. And, th and then finally, I found this one rule. Now, this is kind of theologically dense, so you've got to really pay attention here. This one rule that covers every food that God banned in the Old Testament. And the rule goes like this. Okay, it's no oddballs allowed. No oddballs allowed. Because if you go back and read it, God says... Here's what a fish is. A fish is supposed to have scales, and a fish is supposed to have fins. So if you got something that swims in the ocean, but it doesn't have scales and it doesn't have fins, like an eel, don't eat it. It's an oddball. And animals that graze, they're supposed to have a, a hoof with a certain shape, and, and they're supposed to chew the cud. And if they do one or the other, if they chew the cud, but they don't have the right kind of hoof, it's an oddball. Don't eat it. All the way through. And birds, you can eat any birds you want, except... Birds are supposed to fly. So if they have wings and they don't fly like an ostrich, don't eat it. It's an oddball. It's a very consistent principle all through the Old Testament. However, what's much more troubling to me and maybe to you if you read those passages, the same principle applied to human beings. God was not very politically correct in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He said, I only want perfect animals. Don't bring any with spots. Don't bring any that are crippled. I want the best. He said, I only want good people, too. I don't want any cripples. I don't want any people with leprosy. I don't want any women who are menstruating. And he gives all of these rules here. They weren't even allowed to come to church, the, the temple. They weren't allowed to come to worship. God says, no oddballs allowed. Jesus did not act like a Jew. Because just like Peter, he was raised under the same restrictions that I've just described. And yet it's as if Jesus went out of his way to overturn that principle. 
to reverse it so that instead of saying no oddballs allowed, Jesus says we're all oddballs, but God loves us anyhow. He would go to half-breeds, people of different races that the Jews looked down on, like Samaritans. He would strike up a conversation to his disciples' shock and dismay. He would go to a woman who had an unsavory reputation, who had had five husbands, was living with a man who wasn't her husband, to an adulteress, to, to a person with leprosy, to a tax collector, the scum of the earth back then, to a Roman centurion. The whole Old Testament principle was based on contamination. If you get too close to a corpse, for example, or a person with leprosy, you might get what they've got, you know? So we've got to stay apart. It's as if Jesus went out of his way. You know something? When Jesus touched an adulteress, he didn't get impure. She got pure. (laughs) And, and, And when Jesus touched a person with leprosy, He didn't get leprosy. The person with leprosy got healed. And when Jesus touched a corpse, he didn't get contaminated. The corpse got resurrected. (laughs) Do you see the change? And the whole Old Testament, and, and Jesus' playmates, and he himself was raised, don't get too near those people. You might get their cooties on you. Jesus changed that. There are no oddballs. In fact, it's as if he went out of his way to embrace the oddballs. That's an important principle for me, because what I sense in a lot of people today in the United States is kind of a return to the Old Testament. You know, if we can just shame unwed mothers and stigmatize homosexuals and lock up the prisoners and lock out the immigrants, we can get our country back to the way it used to be in the 1950s with leave it to beaver. (laughs) That's not Jesus' style. Jesus' style is to embrace each one of those groups and bring to them not God's judgment, but God's mercy. Jesus did not act like a Jew. Number eight, Jesus lost the culture wars. That's a phrase I hear a lot about. Every time we have an election, I hear people say, oh, who do you think should be God's man in the White House? And uh, I kind of put myself back in Jesus' time wondering, did it ever cross Jesus' mind who should be God's man in the Roman Forum? Should it be Nero or Caligula? (laughs) (laughs) The, the, the kingdom that he described just, just had nothing to do with what was going on in Rome. Jesus never talked about the politics of Rome. And, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians in America, kind of, they, they think that the future of the church depends on what happens in places like Sacramento and Washington, D.C. And, and the Kremlin and Moscow. I, I don't think it has anything to do with what happens there. In our own time, we've seen what happened in a place with a much more opposing government in communist China. I talked to a a missionary who was among those kicked out in 1950. China was the pearl of the missions movement. There were 6,000 missionaries in China in 1950, and they were all kicked out. And they would sit in places like the Philippines and Hong Kong and have prayer meetings and fall on their knees. You know, Lord, what do you have in mind, this poor, struggling church? Uh, Because they ran hospitals and clinics and orphanages and and publishing companies and now all that's taken away and these poor believers and I, I asked this man, well how many Christians were they? 
He said, well, I'm conservative, but uh, most people would say there were a million. I would say 750,000. And these poor 750,000, they had no one to teach them, no one to treat their wounds, no one to publish. They couldn't even publish Bibles. It was illegal for them to meet in Bible studies. You talk about a culture wars. It was illegal for their parents to, to tell their children Bible stories. And so for 40 years, people like this missionary sat and kind of heard rumors, but they didn't know. They prayed for this poor, struggling church, all alone, nothing but the Holy Spirit, really. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, then President Nixon went to China, and things opened up a little bit, and this missionary was one of the first that went back. And I said, well, what did you find? He said, well, again, I, I'm pretty conservative. Most people would say 50, I would say 35 million Christians in China. Um, the Holy Spirit did quite well on his own, thank you. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I guess that for reasons like that, I, I don't really get all that concerned about what happens in Sacramento or, or Washington, D.C. I remember I was on a panel before a very distinguished audience at, at a Renaissance weekend, and I, I was supposed to speak on culture wars. Other people on the panel were the president of Disney and Warner Brothers and Anita Hill's personal attorney and uh, Lucinda Robb, Lyndon Johnson's granddaughter, who's father had just beaten out Oliver North in a, in a Senate campaign. And I was kind of the token Christian, you know? Uh, wore my t-shirt with a bullseye target on it. And uh, because they, they saw right-wing Christians as kind of the enemy fighting the culture wars that they represented. And uh, I, I was writing the book on Jesus at the time, and I said to them, I follow a, a Jew... Five foot one, Bob, uh, from first century Palestine. And first I went back to see how Jesus fought the culture wars. And the way he fought it was this. He didn't fight it with, with banners and placards and, and protest marchers, marches. He fought it by, by giving his life in sacrificial love. And among the last things he said were, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And... Uh, a, a man came up to me afterwards, very famous man, you'd all know his name, he's on TV every week, who said, you know, I, I was all set to hate you because you, you wouldn't believe the letters that I get from the religious right. And I said, well, actually, I would. I get a lot of those letters myself. Um, <laughs> he said, I was all set to hate you, but what you said about Jesus, I, I don't follow Jesus, I'm a Jew, but that got to me. Because I, that's the attitude I should have toward my enemies, the religious right. And I'm a long way from forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I've got a lot to learn from this Jesus of yours, he said. And I think if we ever do win the culture wars in the United States, it won't be through voting blocks. It will be the way Jesus won it, through sacrificial love. The way the church in China won it. Jesus lost the culture wars. Number seven, Jesus was a poor salesman. For one thing, he didn't especially like miracles. Uh, every time he would do one, he, he would tell people, now don't tell anybody, you know, no pictures please, <laughs> no publicity. He had so many opportunities to capitalize and he, he turned them all down. We have this strange phrase in, in English called a, a savior complex. 
And it, it applies to people who think they've got to kind of save the whole world all by themselves. The weight of the whole world rests on their shoulders. Well, interestingly, the only savior we've ever had didn't seem to have a savior complex. Uh, he could be out with a crowd of people, all of whom had crying needs, and he'd say, man, I'm tired, I've got to get to sleep, and get in a boat and row across the lake. Uh, a rich man came up to him and said, a rich man came up to him and said, Joe, Jesus, what do I have to do? And he said, well, keep all the law. Oh, I do that. Well, then give away everything you had. Oh, no. And he walked away. And I know what I would have done. Well, maybe we can negotiate. You know, uh, why don't you start with like 10%? Uh, just make out the check to, uh, uh, but Jesus didn't do that. He, Mark says he, he walked away and, and Jesus loved him. Uh, Jesus didn't have much of a savior complex. When he gave, he gave three invitations that I know of. He, he, these are the invitations. Take up your yoke, take up your towel and wash each other's feet, and take up your cross. Not very attractive invitations, were they? Um, but, but Jesus wasn't a very good salesman. In fact, the statement he made that's repeated in all four Gospels, more than any other statement, is you, you gain your life by losing it by giving it away, by squandering it. That's how you gain your life. I, I think back, and thought, man, if only I could edit Jesus' life. Uh, the resurrection. He only returned to people and showed himself to people who had already believed in him. Why didn't he, like, appear on Pilate's porch? Hey, remember me? I'm back! <laughs> but he didn't do that. He went to these kind of cowardly disciples who had already failed him, deserted him. Jesus wasn't a very good salesman. Number six, no one had any idea what Jesus looked like. I've asked people, they all say tall, no, five foot one. Uh, handsome, I don't know. The only, anything like a description we have in the Bible is from Isaiah, and it goes like this. He had no beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Number five, you might not have wanted Jesus at your backyard barbecue. <laughs> I don't think he made a very comfortable dinner guest. When I look back at my image of Jesus growing up in the church, I call it Mr. Rogers with a beard. <laughs> this nice man, always patting little children on the head, you know, be nice to your mommy and daddy. Uh, then it, it later occurred to me, no one would think of crucifying Mr. Rogers. No one would... <laughs> you know, no one would, would execute Captain Kangaroo. Uh, just wouldn't happen. And so I, I realized I had an inadequate idea of who Jesus was growing up. Uh, there are eight stories in the Gospels of people who, who invited Jesus over for dinner, and about four of them were sorry. <laughs> Number four, Jesus is not the church. There was a wise man, uh, George Buttrick, who had been chaplain at Harvard, and he said he had a very common occurrence. A, a, a student at Harvard would come and throw themselves down in a comfortable chair he kept in his office and kind of angrily pronounce, I don't believe in God, kind of throwing down the gauntlet to the chaplain at Harvard. And he would just kind of sit back in his, in his chair and say, well, tell me what kind of God you don't believe in. I probably don't believe in him either. <laughs> and I, I realized uh, one of the great comforts to my faith is that, is that Jesus is not the church. And 
a lot of my hang-ups, a lot of my resistance, a lot, a lot of my inoculation against God was really inoculation against the church. Uh, when I got to know Jesus, wonderful phrase from Archbishop William Temple, in God is no unchristlikeness at all. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. When I got to know Jesus, he was actually exactly who I would want God to be. He was brilliant, unpredictable, untamable, severe, compassionate, merciful, loving, all of those things at once. It was a great encouragement to me, raised in a very bad church, to learn that Jesus is not the church. And yet, at the same time, number three... The church is Jesus. I wrote two books on the body of Christ. And frankly, when I go through the life of Jesus, the one miracle that I have problems with is it's not the virgin birth. They can do that at Santa Barbara General Hospital now. Um, it's, not, it's not the resurrection. I figure a God who created a human body and put together all the cells can probably rearrange it and recreate it and, and revivify it. It was the ascension. <laughs> Why did Jesus leave us alone? Uh, knowing as he must have what lay ahead in church history, the crusades, the inquisition, the slavery, all of that. Why did he leave us alone? And yet he told his disciples, it's for your good that I am going away. Jesus believed in the dandelion method, you know. Uh, I get dandelions in my yard, and I can get rid of those dandelions by picking them up and blowing very hard, and they're gone until next year. <laughs> and Jesus said, that's the way my life is. Unless a seed falls into the ground and die, it won't bear fruit. Someone came up to me once and said, oh, where is God when it hurts? Uh, one of these people, answer that in ten words or less. Thanks a lot. Just wrote a whole book. Uh, but I thought a minute and I said, well, to me the answer to that question is another question. Where is the church when it hurts? Because if we are Christ's body, if we are doing the work of God, if we are acting as the presence of God in this world, there won't be people walking around scratching their heads saying, how does God feel about this? They would know. They would know. The church is Jesus. Number two, Catholics are better at calendars than Protestants are. When I grew up, uh, Easter was the big day. Uh, we would get new clothes, tight new shoes, you know, scratchy new shirts. The choir would sing some new cantata. This was like the big day. The trumpets would come out. Uh, we never had anything on the rest of Holy Week. And every once in a while, a Catholic at school would come with kind of a dirty spot on their head, you know. And what is this, Ash Wednesday? What's that? And they had... Yeah, Wednesday and then Monday, Thursday and Good Friday. They had all these days that we, we just kind of wanted to get past those to Easter. We never had church services then. Well, when I went into the Gospels, actually I found that the Gospels are a lot more like the Catholic calendars than, than ours because they spend about a third of their space on that last week. Again, if I were writing the Gospels, I'd start with the resurrection, you know, start with the proofs, and then kind of work backwards. They didn't do that. They'd have a page or two on the resurrection, but a third of it on, on that last week. And I often scratched my head and wondered, why did they spend so much time on the, the down period, the dark side? At this same Renaissance weekend, I mentioned Tony Campolo was there. 
and there was a panel in front of everybody with these very distinguished persons, an astronaut who had walked on the moon and the first woman president of a Wall Street firm and, and David Souter, Supreme Court Justice, and they each had an assigned topic, what it's like to walk on the moon, whatever, uh, a day in the life of a Supreme Court Justice. And then Tony Campolo was last, which is always a good idea. You don't want to follow him. Uh, <laughs> And I don't know what topic they assigned him, and with Tony it doesn't really matter because he talks about whatever he wants to. And this particular day, he, he decided to give his great sermon, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming! And I'm sitting there, Tony, you know, half these people are Jewish, they don't even believe in Sunday. And uh, is this the right choice, you know? And I had heard this thing quite a, quite a bit, and I have the video and the tape, you know, and... Uh, you know, so I, I was kind of watching other people's reaction. David Souter, distinguished Bostonian Supreme Court Justice, started moving away in his chair, you know. <laughs> is this contagious here? And Tony is flailing and, and spitting and sweating and all those things. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. And it, it occurred to me as I listened to the sermon for the 14th time that, um, that Tony, Tony may have his days wrong. Because what Tony says, it's Friday, there are people who are poor, but Sunday's coming. And it's Friday, there are people who are suffering, but Sunday's coming. Well, actually, even after Sunday came, there are still people who are poor and suffering, you know. I mean, the world changed some, but the world didn't change like we want it to change, even on Easter Sunday. And, of course, what Tony is saying is that what God did to his son by turning the worst day of human history into the day we now call Good Friday, he will do for the entire planet, the cosmos. And that is our hope. But it occurred to me that most of us live kind of in between. We live on Saturday, the day with no name. we got Ash Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Saturday, and Easter Sunday. But most of us, most of us feel like it's, it's Saturday. Is Sunday ever going to get here? And I think God and the gospel writers who put together the story of Jesus knew that. Some of them had lived through that dark Saturday, that long, endless Saturday. And when they wrote up the story of Jesus, they gave a lot of space to that time because they knew how that's how many of us would, would feel. Number one, the number one thing that I learned in writing about Jesus is this, that Jesus saves my faith. If you pinned me against a wall and said, okay, tell me, it's probably no easier for you to believe than anybody else. Why, why do you hang in there? Why are you still a Christian? I would say, well, two reasons. Number one, I can't find any good alternatives, and I've looked pretty hard. And number two, Jesus. It's, it, that's all. If it weren't for Jesus, no way I would be a Christian. I mean, think about it. Um, <laughs> But, but what I found in the process of, of writing this book is that, is that Jesus became what I call the magnifying glass of my faith. I've got at home an Oxford English Dictionary. You can buy either a 20-volume a version that costs $2,000, or if you join this one book club, for $39.95, you can get it all in one volume. However, it is so shrunk down and tiny, it is impossible to read. So I've got a huge jeweler's magnifying glass with a fluorescent light built in. It's very cool. And then it actually takes me another magnifying glass underneath that. And then I can see every word in the English language. It is so great. 
One thing I've learned about magnifying glasses is this, that what is in the center of them is very sharp and clear and crisp. In fact, so focused and so sharp that if you held it outdoors in the sunlight, you could start a fire. But out in the margins, it gets a little fuzzy. It gets a little hard to read. And what I have found is that for my faith, I need to bring that magnifying glass and center it on Jesus. I had been spending a lot of time out in the margins. And I found that a lot of the questions I had in the margins take on a different light when I look at them in the light of Jesus. Um, why do bad things happen? I don't know. But I do know how God feels about people who experience those bad things. Because I look at Jesus. God gave us a face. He showed us how he feels when a widow loses her only child, when a person comes down with leprosy. He showed us. He gave us a face. What about my unanswered prayers? Well, I don't know. But it comforts me to know that Jesus had some prayers that weren't answered, too. He stayed up all night praying, Lord, give me the best 12 disciples, and look at who he ended up with, you know, <laughs> including Judas. Uh, he, he, he fell on the ground with loud cries and tears, Hebrew says, to the one who could save him from death. Was he saved from death? No. And among the last prayers he played, prayed were these, Lord, may they be as unified as you and I are in the Trinity. Is that true of the church? Has that prayer been answered? No. Why pray at all? Well, I don't know. I, you know, if God knows everything anyway, why pray? But, but I, I pray because I know Jesus prayed. And if he felt the need to spend as much time as he did praying, then, then I probably do too. And God is no unchrist-likeness at all. Keep your magnifying glass on Jesus if you want to know what God is like. Don't look at the church. Don't look at your teachers or your chaplain or your pastor or yourself. Look at Jesus. Amen.